ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, this is The Minefield. Or is that just what the elites want you to think? I mean, that doesn't work on this show. Let's be honest, this is a show that's basically just elites gibbering on, isn't it? Way to sell it, Waleed. Anyway, uh, we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show or something like that. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my fellow uh, gibberer. How are you doing, Scott? Uh, I'm doing fine. Have we done a show on this topic before? I'm just trying to think. It sort of comes up a bit in passing, I think. But I don't know that we've ever Not really confronted this topic. this topic head on, have we? No, no, we haven't. And one of the things that I'm trying to work out as we think about the topic is, I mean, this in many ways, you know that this is our ninth year of doing the show, right? Yeah. We started in 2015. 2016 is when all sorts of things began to get pretty real. Uh, and we offered a diagnosis in 2016 of something that may well be going on. What I'm trying to work out is are we now confronting an extension, a kind of deepening or a degradation of that phenomenon that we tried to discuss? Or are we living through a troubling new era in our shared democratic As in, did we diagnose it early or is this something other than what we diagnosed? Yeah, I think so. Should we um, quit the abstractions and tell the audience what we're actually talking about? Okay, well, well, (laughs) yeah, kind of. Just go back for a moment to 2015-2016. Most people will remember that 2015, 2016, these are in many respects the halcyon days of online culture. Ben Smith, who's written, he was the news editor of BuzzFeed. He's written this wonderful book, Willie. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Traffic. He talks about the last good day on the internet, which was in February 2015. That was the day when the blue and black, or is it white and gold dress? Oh, that was fun. Went Was that more fun than the Laurel Yanni one? So the, the funny thing is, though, that same day, people were glued to their phones watching footage of two llamas that escaped mm-hmm. from the Arizona Zoo. So it's, it's the last fun day of kind of pure, fun, global divisiveness. Yes, people lined up on either side of blue or black or white and gold, but there wasn't really any malice in it. And... The whole world, it seems, was talking about something. It was division, but in the funnest sense. It was division that you can giggle with, and maybe you can get a little bit contentious over, but who the hell gets hurt, right? So 2015... I think that overlooks that there was a fair bit of division already going on. Okay, thank you. Yes, yes, I know. Yes, I know, which then became unbelievably clear in 2016 when we have the kind of twin seismic events of the outcome of the Brexit referendum and the election of Donald Trump, one of the things that we were diagnosing, that we were talking about a lot in those two years, Waleed, was the emergence of, call it what you will, negative democracy, the aggregation of disaffection, reactive coalitions. This is all language that... Remember that anti-politics? Anti-politics, yes. That, that was uh, around for a year or so. Though. Yes, or counter-democracy. Yeah. So yeah. these are all terms that, I mean, I kind of learned from really a remarkable and to my mind kind of decisive intervention made by the French political theorist Pierre Rosin Vallon back in 2006. I mean, he was, he was incredibly prescient where he said that the age in which we are living is not one where ideological groupings 
come together, empower elected representatives, and give them a mandate to pursue a common project. Instead, we are living, he described, in an age of pervasive distrust, in which we've lost faith with representative politics, in which the public is more interested in divesting politicians of their power, of enacting, he he referred to it in a kind of ocular or spectatorial way. Um, The public has politicians under surveillance, uh, wanting to catch them in misdeeds or in falling down on the job or in failing to fulfill their promises or in disappointing the electorate. And so during the course of any elected government's period in office, there's a kind of growing, he refers to a kind of a pressure cooker of disillusionment and disaffection. And then the opposition comes up during that time promising to throw this party out, to take back control, to make America great again. It's a fundamentally uh, negative message, even if it's dressed up in affirmative or positive terms, take back control, make America great again. But the fundamental idea is it's punitive to the party that is in power. And one of the things that Rosenvallon recognized is that it's very easy to assemble a coalition of the disaffected, a negative coalition, because a whole lot of people might be against something, but they might be against that thing for mutually incommensurable reasons. Yep, they agree on nothing except the opposition to a figure or an idea. That's right. Which is Which why we're seeing in the referendum at the moment. Thank you. And, yep. and it's potent. It's incredibly powerful. All sorts of people for all sorts of different reasons can be opposed to a common idea, to a common proposal. You ask that same coalition, that same group of people to agree on what the proper path forward might be, and they won't be able to because of the mutual incommensurability of those yep. reasons. So we have majorities of dissent, That's and we exactly have right. majorities that are aggregations of minorities that are angry. Which but already can't get yeah. really as a majority. Yes, that's exactly right. Which mm-hmm. makes, and again, I think Rosa Vallon was right about this. It makes politics inherently unstable. There's a kind of instability to democratic politics. So it leads to a pendular swing. The pressure builds back up, an election becomes a release valve. And then a new party gets in, and then they get voted out very soon afterwards. So there's that kind of pendular swing within democracy without really any constructive work being done. What kind of struck me, though, initially, was the ocular metaphor that Rosenvallon used. So people are kind of spectators, people are scrutineers of politics, ready to punish. I'd like to say that I began becoming acutely aware that things were kind of changing, or is it deepening? I don't know, in the lead up to the, to the pandemic. But there's no doubt that that disaffected majority became a really potent force in our informational milieu, in the way that we consume or reject uh, news, in the way that we uh, regard some news as being truthful and others as being fake. I mean, this is simply what we refer to in terms of kind of you know, online polarization or the hyperpartisanship or whatever. But something then happened. And again, we talked about this during the pandemic, Waleed. Something happened in the lead up to 2020 where suddenly it wasn't just that our informational 
environment was fractured. It's that it became fragmented. Yeah. It broke up more and more, not just because they're mutually incommensurable claims, but because that shared online space became so flooded with information, with content. And I want to come back to that term content in a second. Mm. Content, some of which is newsworthy, some of which is merely the appearance of news, some of which is purely manufactured, some of which is trivial, some of which is banal, some of which is conspiratorial. And then suddenly all of this content, which some of uh, often looks almost indistinguishable for one another for reasons we might want to discuss. <laughs> it's kind of jostling in the same space, side by side, so that we kind of live in a, in a communicative environment in which it's not so much there's no way of distinguishing what is true and what is trivial and what is manufactured, but rather there's no incentive not to produce more and more content to fill that space, and there's not enough time. We don't have the discipline to disengage enough. In other words, it's almost as if the cacophony, the online cacophony, reaches the point where it simply becomes too difficult to discern what's true and what's merely conspiratorial. And after a while, the cacophony reaches such a din that it's too hard to engage and it's too easy simply to tune out. We saw well, the. Can I go further than please that? Please do. I don't think tuning in or out's the issue. I think it's that there's no commonality in what you could tune into. Yeah, that, so, that's right. That's a better way of saying it. So, what ends up happening? I mean, perhaps we could conceive of a, I don't know, that not so long ago era in democracies where we had no agreement over our politics. Now we have no agreement over our epistemology. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you don't expect agreement over politics. That's the point of politics, especially democratic politics. It's why you give people a choice between contrasting alternatives and so on. But that only works when you're working from an agreed set of facts about the world, or at least a vaguely agreed set of facts, or even just an agreement on how we might acquire some of those facts. What the fragmentation you've described has done has removed all of those underlying consensus. Hmm. So... Even to say, X happened, well, how do you know? Well, I saw it on the news. Mm. Ah, well. That's right. Let me tell you about the news. <laughs> That's right. Or I read it in The Guardian. Well, let me tell you about The Guardian. Or I saw it on Fox News. Well, let me tell you about Fox. That's right. And that's before you even get to non-MSM, as they say in the classics. So there's no agreement on the authority of information any longer. And here I don't mean the authority of ideas. Mm. That's right. I mean, that's always contested to some degree. I just mean the authority of basic information on how we might gather these things. And so the, the disillusionment you've described with reference to politics, I think is true. I just think it's too narrow. It's a disillusionment with any institution, really. Anything that has been with us for a while, anything that takes an institutional form, perhaps with the exception of national sporting teams. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's right. But, and maybe even there, they weren't exceptions. But the the disillusionment with media has been a part of that. And so the disillusionment with any kind of authoritative information, and therefore you end up in this situation where there's no common epistemology. And what happens there is yeah. you think you're having a public conversation, but actually different people are talking about 
completely different things. And see, and this we've is seen where that play out with the voice. Yes, we? exactly. That's right. Exactly where we are. It makes me wonder whether a referendum debate is actually possible. Precisely right. I mean, the voice is a uniquely difficult referendum to have, which is why you know I said from the very beginning I just can't see how it can ever pass. But I mean, it would take something shockingly simple and dull, I think, to have everybody capable of having a singular conversation about it now. I think it's we're just well past that point. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with what you've just said. I, I think that's absolutely right. The reason that I located the fragmentation and its effect on politics is because, to my mind, it now no longer makes sense. And what I'm trying to work out is, again, is this an extension or are we at the dawn of a new era? If what we just lived through over the last 15 years could be described as following Pierre Rosenvallon as the age of distrust, have we now entered something like the age of noise, the age of confusion? Because what was good, I think, about Rosenvallon's diagnosis of the ability, the relative ease with which aggregates of dissent can be formed and can vote out or can punish, or can oppose. That, it seems, just held true. It, it seemed to be such an accurate diagnosis of what we saw in 2016 in particular, and in several of the years after. But it now seems as though it's not even that people can get on one side of a particular debate. It's that it's almost gone fractal, that you now have these chaotic inhabitations of a world that is so cacophonous that it's almost as though individuals' particular engagement through the way that the algorithms throw their preferences back to them and the particular way that online engagement prioritizes the most scandalous, the most fractious, the most divisive, it now means that if there is a kind of momentary congealing or coalescing around what would seem to be a common position, like no or like believe or Trump or whatever, is that that is almost a mirage. It's something that coalesces, that congeals for a moment, only to then dissipate all over again. Now, the further thing, though, that I just find really concerning here, people are going to roll their eyes at the idea, yes, blame it all on social media. But the way in which social media reduces all forms of information to mere content and that content can be a news story from the New York Times. It can be a piece of made-out-of-whole-cloth conspiracy from two teenage boys' bedrooms in Macedonia. It could it can be, be an argument about the color of a dress. It could be an argument about the color of a dress. It could be health warnings from the, uh, the CDC. So all of those things are treated as being of equal value as content, the only thing that distinguishes them as content is the extent to which they are able to circulate. There's this wonderful book by Kate Eichhorn uh, called Content, and she has this, to my mind, extraordinary idea that what social media platforms have done is they've reduced information of all kinds to content, and the purpose, the telos of content isn't to communicate, but to circulate. And the value of content is valuable only insofar as it's circulating. Can, can I just add to that, though? Mm. Is that a an upending or an extension of the media model? Yeah, I think that's probably right. 
I mean, the answer is it's probably both mm. in degrees, depending on what you mean by the media model and which, I mean, but that's a boring answer. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that we described in our quarterly essay, Waleed, was from the very beginning, the inherent attractiveness of content that appeals to a particular emotional valence. Uh, right. And this has always been true in media. And I mean, you don't need me to tell you about, you know, the effect of ratings on <laughs> the production of content, do you? No. Whenever I find myself talking to someone who says, well, the media should be doing more of X, Y, Z, it's amazing how often the answer really to their objection is, have you seen what happens when the media does that? And the answer is usually no one watches it. Hmm. And then the media takes it. There's a feedback loop there. Yeah. I mean, you can get into an argument about, you know, is this what makes public broadcasting different and therefore important and so on? But let's be honest, public broadcasters are also moved by ratings. And they're having to compete for attention within the same online ecosystem. Well, I'm thinking though, before the online ecosystem, they mm. were competing for attention within the media ecosystem, which I'm not saying there's no difference between the logic of media and the logic of social media. I think there is a difference, but I, I just think it's important to note that there's overlap as well. Yeah. And what we're talking about really is a kind of sort of radical acceleration of this and a radical atomization of this. What One of the things that media companies always had to do was try to figure out aggregation. How do we walk a path that will bring lots of people to it together, that lots of people will either be happy to or just will tolerate walking? <laughs> Social media doesn't need to do that. In fact, the more niche it is the more likely it becomes to circulate because actually it exists in global subcultures which are simultaneously tiny but huge. Mm. And so they're, they're huge because they're global and they can circulate to a significant degree, but they're tiny in that they don't actually need to interact with broader society right. or any kind of sense of what's mainstream because that's, there is no mainstream now. And the society we're talking about isn't geographically defined mm. in the same way, so it's not limited in the same way. So can I just add one further thing, Waleed, that for me, I suppose, really provided the impetus for this particular conversation. So I think anybody who's been paying attention over the last six years in particular kind of recognizes something that we're describing. They recognize that this is kind of part of the, uh, the informational communicative environment, the atmosphere. Um, I mean, it's striking to me. If I can just to take a step back to my beloved Hannah Arendt, I mean, she, she described the importance of what she called factual truths as being the equivalent of placing a table in the middle of a room with chairs seated around it and people coming into a room and sitting around a common table, all recognizing that that table exists for them to sit around. But then if one removes the table, the people are still kind of sitting around one another. The factual truths, in other mm. words, attract people to a common focal point where they can agree on something like a shared world, a shared world in which they act, a shared world in which they speak, a shared world that they are working together to make more just. The, the factual truths have created the context within which they can speak with one another, deliberate, disagree, uh, compromise, and so on. Um, imagine now a room in which there are chairs scattered around and the lights have been turned off. It's not just that there isn't a table. There's no unifying principle and there's a, there are active perverse incentive towards confusion, towards not being able to speak with one another and make sense with each other. And so what we've then seen, okay, it's not just during the COVID pandemic, but I think we all witnessed the acceleration during the COVID pandemic 
the perverse incentives towards the active sowing of confusion and chaos into that informational space. For some, it's simply nihilistic. For others, it's going to be conspiratorial. In other words, the perverse or deluded belief that a greater good is in fact being served. But now we're seeing that sowing of purposeful confusion as a kind of political strategy. So take, for instance, the use of many people hopefully should know what I'm talking about when I refer to the fake elector scheme that's now being investigated in the United States. The use of false representatives from states to be sent to Congress bearing fraudulent credentials as members of the Electoral College, not so that their votes could be counted, but so that on the day of the ratification of the Electoral College, chaos would simply reign. There would be sufficient confusion that it would be sent back to the states and that would eventually have to be adjudicated by the court. In other words, a strategy of the purposeful sowing of confusion. More recently, we've seen the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in the United States um, announce an impeachment inquiry, not impeachment proceedings, an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden, quite purposefully, not so that an impeachment vote would eventually be held, which would almost certainly be defeated, but rather to muddy the waters and to distract from the 91 counts that are currently being faced by former president and current presidential candidate. Donald Trump. And it's then in this context, Megan Davis, she's been a guest on this show. She's one of the architects of the regional dialogues that led to the Constitutional Convention at Uluru. She's one of the framers of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. She wrote a a quarterly essay uh, making the case, if you like, for The Voice in the lead up to the referendum. Megan Davis wrote a response to correspondence to her quarterly essay. Let me read you one passage towards the end. I don't think, Megan Davis writes, anyone expected the misinformation and disinformation to dominate the way that it has. She's talking about the referendum debate. As The Guardian has reported, the No campaign has funding and expertise from companies registered in Texas who are from the Christian far right and are experts in Trumpian misinformation and disinformation. Here's the crucial line. The Yanks have arrived on our shore and they are interfering in the integrity of our democracy. This should be a bigger topic of conversation than it is. What she's referring to, it seems to be the purposeful sowing of confusion, of chaos, knowing that the informational environment in which we live is fertile soil for precisely that kind of chaos. My question is, how on earth does anything resembling the kind of democratic deliberation, not agreement, not consensus, but arguing over the conditions of our common world. How can that survive? How is that possible within yeah, that kind of... can't. Yes. Which is why I think democracy is in peril. I don't think democracy is in peril because there's going to be some anti-democratic revolution. I think democracy is in peril because the preconditions of it are going to become and already are becoming unrealizable. This is why, and I've said this before, I've sort of started occasionally referring to the US as a post-democracy because mm. it's it, it has the trappings of democracy, but the, the fundamental preconditions are, are eroding to such an extent that it makes it difficult. And I think what Megan says there is broadly right, except that I, I don't know that it was unforeseeable. No. I think I disagree on that. I also, and I think this is not a criticism of Megan at all, and I'm not saying she's saying this, but I think it's important to note, I don't think that's why no is winning. Mm. 
I think no is winning for other reasons. That might be a contributing factor, but it's actually not that simple. But is this the moment where I can read out my Bernard Williams quote that I like yes, to read please. out all the time? Sure. So I do this because I, I think this is the best, one of my favourite quotes. It's, it's the best summary of the informational context in which we are, and then we'll get our guests to weigh in. He says, moreover, the internet shows signs of creating for the first time what Marshall McLuhan prophesized as a consequence of television, a global village. And then this is the kicker, Scott. Something that has the disadvantages both of globalization and of a village. Certainly it does offer some reliable sources of information for those who want it and know what they're looking for. But equally, it supports that mainstay of all villages, gossip. Mm. It constructs proliferating meeting places for the free and unstructured exchange of messages, which bear a variety of claims, fancies and suspicions, entertaining superstitious, scandalous or malign. The chances that many of these messages will be true are low, and the probability that the system itself will help anyone to pick out the true ones is even lower. In this respect, postmodern technology may have returned us dialectically to a transmuted version of the pre-modern world, and the chances of acquiring true beliefs by these means, except for those who already have knowledge to guide them, will be much like those in the Middle Ages. At the same time, the global nature of these conversations makes the situation worse than in a village, where at least you might encounter and perhaps be forced to listen to some people who had different opinions and obsessions. As critics concerned for the future of democratic discussion have pointed out, the internet makes it easy for large numbers of previously isolated extremists to find each other and talk only among themselves. I don't know any more than needs to be said, Scott. Mm. It's the best summary I've come across still. And all, all we do is just see different iterations of it. That, by the way, is from Bernard Williams' extraordinary book, Truth and Truthfulness, which uh, well and truly predated the social media age. Well, the first edition of it, there was a later edition in which that passage appeared, which was about the time where the algorithms started to emerge. So he was onto it very quickly, mm. and he recognised what was happening. Shall we meet a guest? Yes, please. All right. Well, I'm depressed. Uh, that's why we need to get a happy, <laughs> sunny guest to lift us out of our post-democratic stupor and hopefully point us in the direction towards the sunny fields to come. Andrea Carson is Professor of Political Communication at La Trobe University. She's a researcher. She's the author of a remarkable book called Investigative Journalism, Democracy and the Digital Age. Andrea, welcome back onto the minefield. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Is it wonderful? Is it, Andrea? Well, Waleed, you have, and Scott, have just painted a very dystopian view of the information age, which uh, you've also given me a tall order to add some optimism to it, which I'm happy to take <laughs> up the challenge. Go on then. Okay. Well, I think the broad parameters of what you're talking about, I agree with a lot of that, but I also think it's not as linear as what Scott's pointed out, that if we pull the lens back a bit, when the internet first became commercialised, there was a great degree of optimism around that time. It was seen as being a moment of um, democratic renewal because we could share information and we could improve the plight of others through that exchange of information. And it was Cass Sunstein from Harvard University back in 2000, and I think it was 2000, 2001, in his book where he alerted people to filter bubbles and the concerns of eco-chambers and we should start being concerned. So I don't think that idea of 2015 being the last rosy day was the last rosy day. I think it, there was warning signs well before that. But that was, when I said that, Andrea, that was firmly ironic. My tongue yes, was I so know. deeply stuck in my cheek. But my favourite bit of this is Andrea's trying to cheer us up by saying, oh, no, there wasn't a nice time. <laughs> no, 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 I'm getting to it. I'm 
just But it is remarkable. It is remarkable, and incidentally, just how much egalitarianism and the marrying of egalitarianism and epistemology was the, uh, I mean, this was the great dawn that was being heralded by those early internet theorists. And probably what the problem was, was that there weren't sufficient guardrails right at the beginning. So while everyone was really optimistic, there was an assumption that human beings were going to bring out the best sides of each other and share information and be more democratic and uh, lift the overall tide so that everyone could prosper. But of course, human beings do like to game things (laughs) to find ways of um, exploitation and That was also true of the digital sphere where we see that disinformation, the deliberate spread of falsehoods to cause harm for other people's gain or for political purposes, has been able to take hold. And because, as Waleed pointed out, it's because there are no limits now. We're not geographically confined in the way that we were when it was a broadcast where you could only reach as far as a signal or as far as a newspaper because, of course, mis- and disinformation aren't new. We've had newspapers that have produced false content for for three, four hundred years, but it was limited by geographical boundaries. And now the digital connectivity makes those boundaries limitless and it can spread very fast. Mm. However, here's the optimism. There's increasingly a movement towards understanding how we can put those guardrails back in place. Terry Flew and others from University of Sydney have called this the regulatory turn, and we're seeing some of this movement in Australia, the movement from a voluntary code of mis- and disinformation to a bill before the parliament at the moment, moving that to a mandatory code, which is taking a leap towards what the European Union has already done, which is probably seen as the the leader in this space. And the other thing Australia has been doing is develop the News Media Bargaining Code, which is to try and shore up quality media and return some of the profits of Google and Facebook, namely, back to producing public interest journalism. And the reason I raise that is because, Scott, you got me thinking about these flattened hierarchies, the Mm. epistemic crisis that you've been talking about where all information just comes in together and it's very hard for the public to work out what is real and what's not real. And we have a lot of survey work on that to show that's as true in Australia with 70% of Australians saying they find it hard to differentiate between fact and fiction on basic facts. And we see that in the UK, the US, other places. And I think some of that is because we don't have enough signals about what is quality media. And part of that is because the business model for journalism has been flattened over the last, well, most of this since the turn of the millennium. Finding mechanisms to put money back into quality journalism, I think, is a step in the right direction. What does that mean, though, if people have, in the meantime, decided quality journalism is a conspiracy? That the, the mere idea of listening to quality journalism is a betrayal of your free thinking. It's a form of control. I guess the thing is, once these sort of ideas have seen, and by the way, part of the reason those ideas succeed is that what we're calling quality journalism has behaved terribly at times, done terrible things, made pacts for the sake of reach or ratings or whatever that have eroded its authority. So I'm nodding furiously here because I agree with that. And I think that points to the fact that there's multiple stakeholders here that need to work together if we're to answer the very big challenge that Scott's put out about how do we move away from this 
dystopic situation, and that is that it's not just social media platforms that have to improve things. Mm, It's also mainstream media. It's also journalism. It's also there's a role there for policymakers. There's a very big role there for politicians who often contribute to the mis- and disinformation. And on that, I also raise a question about, Scott, you've given us the idea that this is a grassroots movement that is um, dissatisfied with democracy. But I would also argue that this has been stirred by political actors who are acting very expediently. And they have some responsibility there to not sow deliberate disinformation for their own purposes. So here's my challenge. Yeah. Look, you're right. You're absolutely right. My one kind of provide my one qualification there. Uh, I mean, you both remember that the series of hand wringing diagnoses after Brexit and after Trump, the sheeting home of blame to Russia, the sheeting home of blame to Cambridge Analytica. I mean, one of the things that I think it took us a very long time to come to grips with is yes, there were bad actors who exploited this rich and fertile field for disinformation. But in a very real way, through our own consumer choices, through our own inattentiveness, and through our own desire for convenience, for frivolity, for triviality, for entertainment, we we kind of tilled the field. I mean, they might have sown the seeds, but we prepared the ground. And by we, I just mean, you know, users, consumers of, of media. One of the, the other things, though, Andrea, that, you know, I mean, what you said, I, I think is absolutely right, but I guess maybe a missing part of the narrative is also the degree to which mainstream media, quality journalism, decided, not without good reason, that it needed to offer its wares where the people are, which meant delegating or outsourcing the responsibility for the distribution of its quote-unquote content to social media platforms. And I, I suppose my my ultimate question in the middle of all this is, yes, I agree that it's important that public interest journalism, quality journalism, quality political reporting that enriches, that informs the electorate, it's vital that it be sourced, it's vital that it be funded, it's vital that it continues to survive. Can we really, really continue to distribute, though, this content on these clogged conflicted, chaotic social media platforms? I mean, what, what, for instance, if the New York Times, the ABC, the Guardian decided, you know what, if you want to get your conspiracy and your memes and your little bits and grabs of disinformation on TikTok, you go right ahead. When you want information, we'll be here waiting for you. I just no, don't know one would read their stuff. That's what uh, would happen. Yeah, the horse is bolted on that one, <laughs> well, I think. it is. But by posting content on things like TikTok, there's a kind of legitimation of TikTok as the kind of platform on which things can reasonably be posted. Agreed. Yeah, but people yeah. were saying this about Facebook 10 years ago, and I remember... And we were right! When, <laughs> uh, yeah, but what I'm saying is if you create a vacuum or a void, something else fills it. So... If it's not Facebook, if it's not Instagram, if it's not TikTok, there's always something else coming down the line. And if you don't participate in that space, you don't reach the audience potentially. Mm. The problem is (laughs) the audience doesn't exist. There are multiple audiences. There's 8.4 million Australians on TikTok. That feels like an audience to me. No, it's not. It's a bunch of audiences aggregated into a number. 
but it's not an audience. This is the fundamental distinction between broadcasting and whatever we have now. It's a kind of narrowcasting, really. Right. An audience presupposes a kind of public gathering. What the fragmentation means is that, that there is no singular audience. And so the thing we've identified is that the structure of our information, our informational landscape now, is that it's so fragmented that really you, the best way to succeed in it is to pick your niche and go for it. You might call it the Joe Rogan style thing. Biggest podcast in the world, is it? I think it was. It probably still is. Massive. Go out on the street and poll 100 people and ask them whether or not they've listened to it. Maybe two, depending on where you are. Because it's actually a tiny number before a globally available group of people and it exists in a niche and that niche just happens to be really big. I think what we're seeing here is a clashing of models. One is about speaking to a public. The other is about undermining the very existence of a public by creating a series of subcultures. This is why we end up with the majorities of dissent rather than majorities of assent. Well, that's not always the case, though, is it? When we look at, say, connective action, which was the work of Lance Bennett and Alexandra Siegerberg back in 2014, they looked at the same use of social media and platforms that was used to bring together heterogeneous publics to support common causes such as the Occupy movement and were able to mobilise protesters to be able to affect political change. Protesters, you say? Well... That, that is dissenters. And where's the Occupy movement? I guess what I'm saying is that this can be used for good and for bad. There can... This can be a, a positive political tool. Well, the point I, I'm circling around is I'm not assessing whether it's used for good or bad. I'm assessing what's possible under these conditions. And it seems to me what's not possible is a coherent public debate about something. It therefore follows, now you might think that's for good or for bad. Presumably if you're voting no in the referendum, you think all this is being used for good, right? If you're voting yes, you think it's being used for bad, at least some of the, you know, I think, I think there's a consensus that no is winning on TikTok, right? So let's... I think there's a consensus no is winning... Full stop. Yeah. Yeah. But but on, I've seen analysis saying yes wins on Twitter, I think it is. No wins on TikTok. TikTok's mm. more influential at the moment. Whatever. Anyway, whether that's for good or for bad will ultimately reflect your own position rather than answer a question that's meaningful here about the way in which public discourse or debate in democracy can proceed. And the question that is raised, I think, quite urgently is can you have democracy in the absence of a coherent public debate? Can democracy exist amidst chaos like this, where it's not debate, it's messages, and they're disconnected and they're not engaging with one another? Maybe that's a way of putting it. Observing the referendum debate, I know you've been observing it in a very technical way, so you, you would know better than me, I think, Andrea, but how much of the debate is engagement between opposing ideas? Here's an argument, here's my response to that argument, as opposed to here's message A, here's message B, his message alpha, his message Z, that may or may not be connected, but will just persuade or direct people as and when they happen to hit them. I wonder whether what you're describing is actually new. Right. And whether we've always had 
when it comes, particularly referenda, which is a binary yep. position, whether you do get cross-pollination of ideas and you do get the contest of ideas or whether you're being a little nostalgic about the way politics has worked in the past. One thing that I guess we did have, if you're looking at the last century, was less media options and with a national broadcaster, you could get greater cross-pollination right across the whole country. We still have a national broadcaster as a space for uh, that debate. Yes, we get people talking past each other, but where's the starting point? We don't know the private conversations people are having that are being sparked by this. That's true. That's true. Andrea, let me ask it to you this way. There's a sidestep, different case study. The premiership of Daniel Andrews in Victoria, one of the most interesting aspects of it is his avoidance of some of the biggest media platforms that that state has to offer. Breakfast radio or morning radio, talkback radio, I mean, pretty much radio silence on the two big programs, the ABC and the the commercial um, talkback station. Until, like, I think maybe this week, <laughs> right? None of it. A real absence of, it seems, accountability interviewing in the traditional sense that we would understand. However, extremely strong social media game, extremely strong social media presence, and a social media swarm, whether organised or not, I suspect not, of people who become effectively acolytes. So they are so attached that they become impervious to any kind of other, I don't know, criticism. It just becomes dealt with in the way these things tend to be dealt with in social media, that is trench warfare rather than engagement. But the public dimension of it that that we used to, maybe even remember the days when John Howard would talk to talkback callers, right, regularly. That That's very much not part of it. And he is, what, among the most politically authoritative figures in the country? In other words, his, his political ascendancy hasn't suffered from this model. If anything, it's it's built on this model. Do you see that as more of the same or do you see that as a movement in a particular direction that we wouldn't necessarily call richly democratic? Well, we've been seeing this phenomenon for a while now and Tony Blair wrote a very interesting essay about this uh, back at the start of the last decade and that is that politicians can bypass mainstream media and go directly to, controversial word, the audience they're trying (laughs) to reach by speaking to very large publics that are their followers and then get the long tail effect of having mainstream media pick up those comments out of social media and having it replicated and amplified in that way. And we certainly saw the way that uh, Daniel Andrews during COVID was hiding in plain sight every day doing a press conference, speaking directly to the public and giving the appearance that he was available. And the public seemed satisfied with that. In fact, research that I've done with colleagues where we tracked public opinion from the very beginning of COVID showed that trust in politicians went up right at the beginning. And And media, by the way. And Mm, media too. And that started to fall about September 2021. But even when it began to fall, trust in premiers was still much higher than trust in prime ministers, the closest you, you are to the politician. And part of that was because people feel that they were getting to know Daniel Andrews through his regular broadcasted press conference and he obviously didn't suffer at the polls. He increased his Mm. 
electoral lead, taking more seats than he had previously. So he's found a very effective communication mechanism of political communication where he can see the mainstream media doesn't serve him to be scrutinised. Do you think that's a democratic thing, though? So it might be in his political interests. It, yeah, it's absolutely in his political interests. Is it um, in the democratic interest? Well, he, he would argue that he's still speaking to the public. He's doing it directly. He's cutting out the gatekeeper. But well, because... he, But he's also in charge of the broadcast. I mean, if, if he were doing this via a television network, it would be frankly scandalous. What do you mean the Premier has his own television network? Well, can I ask it to you in another way? Sure. If we use the example of Pauline Hanson. Yeah. Because she does something very similar. She has a very large social media presence. And unlike Daniel Andrews, though, she gets engaged in a dialogic relationship with her followers. And she has many of them. She will come backwards and forwards with commentary. We don't see Daniel Andrews doing that so much. No. Or if we do, it's probably his minders that are doing it for him. Mm. Well, Possibly why he's more successful. Well, it depends because she's a niche party. So she doesn't have yeah. to have the broad masses on board. So she can afford to be a lot more controversial. Yep. And by not engaging in the way that Pauline Hanson does, he's able to create the appearance that he's pleasing most rather than the few, whereas she's quite happy to just please the few because she's a niche party. Yes, but her party hasn't prospered recently, right? So it's, its numbers are flatlined. It's become a more marginal player in Australian politics. And <laughs> maybe that's because, in a weird way, what she's doing has a mechanism of accountability in it that the Daniel Andrews model doesn't quite... There's a certain magisterium about... I like your theory, the but I don't know if I agree with it because, and Scott, this might interest you talking about the referendum. One of the things that I'm observing is that politicians like Pauline Hanson take mainstream media and in inverted commas, they take stories from Sky News, they repackage them, recontextualize them, send them out on social media, and that is part of the huge traction mm. and traffic that the No campaign has been able to garner is from politicians organised like Pauline Hanson and Keith Pitt, Barnaby Joyce and others who are using the legitimisation of mainstream media, putting it out on social media and um, getting a grand swell of support. So That's fascinating. And I think one of the things, I mean, this is something that we, again, you're right, Andrea, we've been seeing this for the better part of nine, ten years where something like the mystique or the credibility of mainstream media has a parasitic relationship on, if you like, content producers. So content producers will then take that, but they will then put it with, and we saw this recently involving Marshall Langton, uh, they will then take certain reporting, they will assign their own headlines, something that is more, if you like, either on brand or more amenable to a particular social media context or amenable to the perverse incentives for circulation, for distribution, for engagement uh, that those platforms offer as a way of, uh, it might be promoting a particular brand, it might be sowing further confusion. There's something that we haven't talked about, though, I would be seriously remiss if we didn't get to it. Andrea, before you talked about the importance of speed and scale in the way that misinformation is distributed, the way that it gets out, something we haven't quite talked about, though, is the privileging of quantity over quality. It is of the essence of content that the more there is, the better it is for aggregate uh, circulation. 
So we're seeing new sites. Let's put aside kind of do-it-yourself content producers. If you think about mainstream news sites, there is a ton of content that is produced and circulated, ranging from hard news to lifestyle choices, ranging from uh, reporting on the latest debates in the U.S. Congress through to the wordle of the day. So the amount of content that's being put out at the moment is gargantuan. Hmm. We are also at the brink of a AI content injection age where they don't even have to be human content producers. I mean, surely we are at the point, aren't we, when the sheer tonnage of content flowing into these platforms and then the perverse incentives that attach to them, isn't it going to become more rather than less difficult for credible news organizations with a degree of journalistic integrity and constrained or editorially accountable reporting? Isn't it going to be more difficult rather than less for good content to end up being seen, much less end up being influential? Wow, you've just brought the mood down. (laughs) What can I say about that? I mean, the analogy I used to think about was trying to get a sip of water from a fire hydrant, that you just have so much information coming from you that to achieve something quite small is quite hard to do. And we talked about the epistemic crisis that comes from that, of the confusion. Is there a way forward out of that? I think people are trying to look at various ways. It's certainly um, going to involve a multi-pronged approach with lots of different stakeholders of being able to signal what quality information is, but we also need to value it as a Mm, society. mm, NewsGuard's come into the Australian information system, which is a for-profit company that does like the old heart tick that you used to see about the quality of food and does that to media organisations now to give them a rating. So when you are using chat GPT or you're Googling something, this little rating of 100% down to 0% comes up about how trustworthy the source is. And I think we need more of those quick shortcuts to give us a sense of what we can trust and what we can't trust. But with that also comes obviously media training, media literacy, all the pre-bunking things, and then the post-bunking, the fact-checking. We can't rely on any one of these mechanisms individually, but together we need more tools in the toolkit and thus some of the tools that we have. And the regulatory turn you talk about is, it's a really important moment actually, because if it goes well, and you know, my disposition is to assume it won't, but if it goes well, <laughs> the, well that changes the course of democratic history potentially, right? If it doesn't, then... I don't know, we continue down the road we're on or it gets even worse. I don't know. But it's it's a hinge point. Are we also ignoring the fact, by the way, that fact checkers and the very assessors of the veracity of online content are themselves so deeply, I mean, publicly politicized and yeah. objects of mass suspicion? I'm- and this is new in Australia. Yes, it is. This has just been happening. Fact checkers have been around in the US since 2001. Yep. And it's a multi-billion dollar industry. There's over 300 registered fact checkers and it's growing. It's been quite politicised in the US and as we've been referring to in this conversation, we're again seeing that American contagion effect coming over here. Mm. And I, I guess to be explicit, what we're talking about is that Sky News has been very 
um, ferocious in its attack of one of Australia's fact-checkers, RMIT Fact Labs, recently. In fact, in the research I'm doing on The Voice, that came up as the second most prominent story since the start of the year um, that references The Voice. So it's had enormous reach, so much so that Meta, which employs that organisation as a third-party fact-checker, was forced to suspend its registration in that Mm. role. So there you've got mainstream media, inverted commas, playing a decisive act to break down one of the mechanisms that we have to be able to check the veracity of information. And it's possible because often what we think of as misinformation or a false fact isn't really that. It's actually a completely outlandish opinion that might be very tenuous. So this is what I fear is the next chapter, right. that we are now weaponizing the terminology of misinformation and yeah. disinformation, yeah. when really when we're just disagreeing with someone, rather than walk away and agree to disagree, we now put a label on it in order to weaponize or to devalue that opinion, whereas a fact should be something that is verifiable, that is measurable. And not everything can be fact-checked. And so fact-checkers also need to stay within their lane and only fact-check things that can be verifiable. Yeah. It's just then you don't often get to the stuff that's actually having the most effect, right? Because it's the incendiary or really tenuous scare campaign that isn't about a fact. It's just that it's a scare campaign. Right? And, and fear campaigns have been around forever. forever. Yeah, mm. exactly. Mm. All right, Andrea, let's meet. When does this regulatory turn have its verdict? Is it like 10 years? Is it 20 years? When, well, it, it's kind of happening in Australia. We've got one bill before the parliament at the moment about moving, putting a bit more stick in as well as carrot to get the platforms yeah. to rein in falsehoods online. And we're seeing lots of movement in Europe with the Digital Services Act, so it's happening, but... Let's, when do we judge it, though? Five years? Yeah, let's do that. All right. Five years, Andrea Carson will be back on the show. <laughs> uh, you've got to remind me. I'll forget I said uh, that, and then we'll have to do it then. Thanks very much for coming in again. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Andrea Carson, Professor of Political Communications at La Trobe University. I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.